Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is another episode of On Becoming. As always, we welcome you to get in touch. Our email is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. We've been talking about higher education in the previous two episodes, which largely focused on the issue of plagiarism, what it is, how it can be avoided, and also the fact that the scholarly world progresses by publication and the borrowing of insights from others. I mentioned that in musical forms like folk music and jazz, borrowing, or what would probably look like plagiarism, is the norm. Of course, you wouldn't get very far in the jazz world if all you could do was play solos by, I don't know, Oscar Peterson. Though, of course, if you could play those, then you'd have some pretty serious jazz chops. Sometimes the insights one discovers in the academic world are pretty common. For instance, you may not already know what utilitarianism is, but I'm going to tell you. It's a moral system designed to help you know the right thing to do based on the following maxim. Do that which brings about the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Now that you know that, do you need to quote me? Of course not. I'm merely repeating what utilitarians have been saying for years. It's common knowledge and requires no citation at all. The point is important to know because only certain ideas or views need to be footnoted or have a source. But as you can see, you need to know something about even basic attribution to be able to decide whether something that you've written needs a source or whether you can just say it. Explaining proper footnoting to students in an intro to philosophy course is a little tricky. I found that students generally wanted to avoid even the appearance of plagiarism, so they tended to go in the opposite direction of footnoting too much. Early on in my teaching, I noticed that some students would write something like, William James believes, and then they would use his actual words but without any quotation marks. I had to explain to them that they could either quote from James, but then they'd have to use quotation marks, or better, they could put it in their own words, which would then show that they understood what he was saying. Once they were clear on that, though, those kinds of things just stopped happening. I don't think anyone who was using that technique was trying to cheat or plagiarize, since it would have been far too obvious, and besides, they weren't trying to claim what the author had said as their own. Today's episode continues our examination of the state of academia, but I want to make it perfectly clear that there are a number of ways in which higher education is coming under attack, and I think they're all related. Going back to the article, the next battle in higher ed may strike at its soul, scholarship. Its author, Anemonia Hartacolis, writes, the attacks on the integrity of higher education have come fast and furious over the last few years. She references something that maybe you've forgotten about, what's been called the Varsity Blues Scandal of 2019, in which uh, various parents were exposed as engaging in, um, as it turns out, illegal ways to get their children into college or to get them scholarship money. Some guy named William Rick Singer was paid a lot of money by wealthy parents to help their children cheat on the SAT and ACT exams. There were also successful attempts to get students into schools on the basis of sports they 
didn't actually play or actually didn't play very well. For instance, one parent was accused of providing a $300,000 bribe to get his daughter into USC. That's the University of Southern California. Lori Laughlin, you may have heard of her, and her husband, Massimo Giannulli, offered a half million with the goal of getting their children into USC to play on the rowing team. The two of them were fined a total of $400,000, and Massimo also got five months in prison. Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives paid a mere 15000 to enable her daughter to cheat on the SAT. She served 11 days in prison. The person who took the cake, though, was Douglas Hodge, who had gotten four of his children into elite schools and was working on getting the next kid into college. He was fined $750,000 and sentenced to nine months in prison. That parents would be willing to pay big money to get their kids into elite college is not surprising. I suspect many other wealthy parents would be more than happy to cheat if they thought they could do so without getting caught. What looks so bad, though, is that they were able to achieve these results because people at universities were willing to help. For instance, John Vandermoor was a sailing coach at Stanford, and he was in on the scheme. Clearly, there had to be people who were willing to allow cheating on the entrance exams. In other words, it doesn't make the universities involved, um, Stanford and USC, among others, look good. I can imagine parents wondering if other students had gained admittance by duplicitous means. But let me push this just a little bit further. From what I can tell, the parents involved in the scheme were white. I can't help but think that at least part of this attempt to cheat was based on the assumption or the perception that minority students were getting in even though they didn't deserve admittance. Note that I'm not questioning the admission of any such students. I'm not questioning whether they deserve such admittance. I'm merely noting that this sort of resentment is not hard to find. Let me speak about this from a personal perspective. It's common knowledge at the school where I taught that it's harder for female students to get in than male students. At least then, there weren't nearly as many qualified male applicants as female applicants. I also went to that school as an undergraduate, so maybe I didn't deserve a place, and maybe I got in just because I was male. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? However, when I finished my PhD and went on the job market, it became immediately apparent that my luck in finding a job was going to be very significantly less than female applicants. I deliberately decided to stop counting how many of the jobs I applied for went to women. I am being completely truthful in saying that I didn't, and I still don't, resent that. For many years, the world of philosophy had been an old boys club, one could argue that it still is. So I completely understood and even strongly supported what was happening. It was and is important for women to be working in philosophy. I started teaching feminist philosophy in the mid-90s because no one else in the department was teaching it, and it just struck me that students deserve access to such a course. Interestingly enough, that course began with six female students and me, and then the last time I taught it, there were 20 students, and more than half of them were male.
In a nutshell, the problem with education is that historically it's been largely for those who are white, male, and wealthy. When I was a visiting scholar at a seminary in New York City, I had uh, accommodations that had three rooms. One room was the living room, complete with a beautiful fireplace and mantle. The second room was for the seminary student. The third room was for his servant. That gives you some idea of the wealth of those studying for the priesthood back when that building was built. The building clearly wasn't intended for the average person who don't travel with their servants because, well, they don't have any. For much of the 20th century, schools like Harvard and Stanford had quotas for Jewish students, which meant that only so many Jewish students could gain admittance per year. In 1922, that number at Harvard was capped at 15%. If you've been following the Supreme Court's rulings on affirmative action, you know that these quotas have been uh, an important part of their deliberations. What's interesting about these quotas is that you can interpret them in more than one way. Clarence Thomas described the move by Harvard's president as something that would, and here I'm quoting from Thomas, would help maintain admissions opportunities for Gentiles and perpetuate the purity of the Brahmin race. I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> Whereas the Anti-Defamation League, a Jewish organization, argued that the point of the quotas had been to allow room for minorities, the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, also a Jewish organization, argues that the current system at Harvard effectively discriminates against Asian students, just like the previous rule had discriminated against Jewish students. As you know, schools like Harvard have tried to use affirmative action to create a student body that better reflects the U.S. population at large. I think that's an excellent call. But as you probably also know, the Supreme Court has now prohibited colleges and universities from using that strategy. So how are universities going to achieve something like enrollment that approximates the percentage of the population? I don't have an answer to that question, and neither does anyone else. Universities could, of course, just open things up so the top students in terms of grades and test scores are the only ones admitted without any regard to things like race, geography, socioeconomic status, etc., etc. Unfortunately, that would lead to incoming classes in which most students would be pretty similar. You might wonder if that's worth caring about, this diversity of the student body. But colleges have long sought to balance incoming classes on the basis of a lot of different things. I mentioned geography. Schools often want students represented of the entire U.S., not just the state where it happens to be located. But there are so many other criteria that sometimes are a bit strange. Perhaps they need another clarinet player for the orchestra, and then you get in. Or perhaps there's a scholarship only for people with uh, particular characteristics for from a particular state or something like that. And yes, indeed, there are all sh scholarships exactly like that. I've talked with admissions officers, and they're constantly trying to balance a wide variety of desirable criteria. It's a job that I simply wouldn't want, not least because it must be frustrating to have to explain to students that no, they didn't get accepted. Students and parents inevitably ask why. But most of the time, there just isn't any concrete answer. 
I mentioned before that I've been in a situation where I was in charge of a conference unit that received about 70 paper proposals, and there were at most space for 12 or 13 of them. You should understand that this is incredibly frustrating for the people who organized the conference. Among those 70 proposals were some duds, of course, but there were far more excellent proposals than could be accommodated. In other words, at a certain point, you simply have to pick some, which means that lots of good proposals get rejected. I think I mentioned before the two people wrote back to ask how their proposal could have been better. I had to write them and say that their proposals were superb. They just didn't get picked. One of them actually wrote a second time and asked, okay, so what's the real reason? And of course, all I could say was exactly what I had said. There were only a few spaces, there were far too many papers to fill them, and we had to make decisions. While this experience is not exactly the same as applying for college, I think it's similar enough for the analogy to work. Any good school is going to get far more good applicants than can be admitted. You should understand that it's also frustrating for the people in the admissions office. While we're on the topic of getting into a program, it may be helpful to provide a little idea of how admittance to graduate school goes. Here's an example that captures the problem. At a well-known university, I'm just not going to mention the university, it's not, it's not necessary, the philosophy department received far more applications for its doctoral program than they could accommodate. They got the list down to 50, 5-0, 50 applicants, and they thought that all 50 would flourish and be great additions to the department. But here's the problem. They only had eight slots. How do you eliminate 42 people that you've already decided are more than worthy of entrance? Another school had four slots available for incoming grad students and 200 applicants. Again, how do you get that number down to four? One of the things I began saying to students thinking of going to graduate school was that it was now a matter of luck. Yes, you can have great grades and stellar recommendations, but those may still not be sufficient. And yes, it's pretty frustrating for the professors too. We want our students to succeed and are frustrated that admittance has become so difficult. Yes, I can write a letter for a student that I hope will help them get into the program. But there's not much more one can do in addition to that. It's never a good idea to write an overly positive letter. If the student gets admitted and turns out to be less than advertised, it hurts both the student and the effectiveness of my recommendations. As I've said to many students, I will write the most positive letter I can, but I will not lie and I will not exaggerate. Indeed, at a certain point, a university contacted me and said, you've recommended so many good students that Whoever you recommend from now on will simply get admitted. I'm sure that one of the important reasons for them saying that is the fact that I try to write a letter that describes the student as truthfully as possible. You should also know that one isn't doing a favor to someone by saying that they are more capable than they really are. Arriving to a doctoral program and finding out that everyone is a lot smarter and better read than you are is not going to be a good you might wonder why I've spent so much time talking about admittance. The reason is simple. While there are more than enough universities in the States to accommodate most students, most students apply to a number of schools. 
You probably heard potential students say that their dream schools are X and Y, but they're applying to at least one safety school, a school where they think admittance is pretty certain. I think it's safe to say that most students don't get accepted at all the places where they apply. I can only imagine what it must be like to get the very thin envelope with the bad news. Probably many people wonder why they aren't good enough. But I hope I've made it clear that it doesn't usually come down to anything as simple as you weren't good enough. Still, there's got to be a level of frustration. How does one beat the admissions game? Well, we've already discussed, actually, what some parents have done. The article I've referenced. The author writes that the recent controversies have helped fuel the skepticism that some scholarship is not as rigorous as it purports to be. We're going to get into that discussion, but I think it's important to see how this skepticism colors things. If one doesn't get into the school of one's choice, but discovers that someone you know has been admitted, who doesn't seem worthy of the honor, it would be a natural step to question the people in the admissions office, but also to question whether the school is really all that good. It's a pretty common human response. We don't get what we want, and then we compensate by thinking, well, wasn't that great after all. But if we can attack the university for perceived misconduct, then that's another way of making one feel better about oneself. Again, my point has been and continues to be that you can't talk about the problems of academia individually. Issues regarding admission, perceived quality of scholarship, DEI, and so many other factors are all very closely related. I don't think you can talk about one without talking about them all. Another controversy that feeds into these factors is the rise of retractions of scientific papers. According to the article I've cited, the prestigious journal Nature had retractions of about 400 papers in 2010. In 2023, that number grew to 10,000. Ivan Aransky is a co-founder of the blog Retraction Watch that keeps track of all the papers that have been retracted. His take on the academic world in general, and now I'm quoting, they have tried every which way to avoid acknowledging just how common misconduct is in academia. And what that does is give ammunition to sometimes, let's face it, bad faith actors who want to undermine confidence or undermine the reputation of an institution. Here's a gloss on that statement. Orensky thinks that academic dishonesty gives ammunition to those who want to discredit a given educational institution or simply the academic world in general. I think that's correct. Scientific papers are mostly based on research and experimentation. If researchers want to achieve a certain result, they can, of course, fudge the numbers. But an important question is the extent to which this is actually the case. And here's where I need to state the limits of my knowledge. I'm not a scientist, and I don't do experiments or collect data. But I do have a question whether these retractions are based on deception or whether people simply make mistakes. Oransky seems pretty convinced that the academic world is filled with bad actors. But another academic cited, Stephen Voss, who teaches political science at the University of Kentucky, and he says the following. 
I viewed some of these defenses of Claudine as being false confessions to misbehavior that actually is not taking place at the level her defenders wanted to suggest. He describes such a view as the it-goes-on-all-the-time view. My own view is that plagiarism probably happens, but it's pretty strongly policed. I simply don't believe that wholesale plagiarism is going on. The idea that it happens all the time has very little evidence to support it. Students are routinely told about the dangers of plagiarism, and as one moves up the chain from undergraduate to graduate student and then the position of professor, these concerns about academic honesty continue to be emphasized. Here's a personal example, in the sense that I was there when this happened. I was teaching as a visiting professor in philosophy at the school where I did my PhD. It was the fall of 2009. Someone I had met had told me that she was following a course given by a certain professor. It was sometime in October or November that students were told that the professor would be unable to continue teaching the course. My friend assumed that the professor must be ill. Hmm, that's a pretty reasonable assumption. Over time, though, it became apparent that there was no illness involved. The person teaching that course had had one of his articles put into question over issues of plagiarism. But that wasn't the last of it. Soon people were reading all of his articles, about 40 in number, and they determined that all of them had been plagiarized to one extent or another. I don't know whatever happened to this professor, and you'll note that I've not named him. The reason is that I'm sure he's already been thoroughly shamed, and there's no need to add to that. However, the most important thing you should know is that this kind of situation is incredibly rare. In fact, that's what's so interesting about the case. These things happen so infrequently. It stands in stark contrast to the standards of the academic world. And of course, once the plagiarism was discovered, serious steps were taken. The journals where his articles had appeared were notified, and there was a serious review of all of his work. One of the things I have never understood is how he thought he could get away with it. Let's just say the person works in a very narrow niche field in philosophy, and that means that there aren't many other philosophers who work in that area, which means that there also would be relatively few people from which to plagiarize, and everyone in the field knows everyone. From the standpoint of plagiarism, it's hard to imagine what he was thinking. It's also ironic that he routinely gave warnings against plagiarism to groups of graduate students. But at the end, it's just sad. By the way, I applied for that job that he got. You might think that it gives me comfort to know that they chose a serial plagiarist instead of me. But the reality is that it just makes me sad. When you're part of the academic community, academic dishonesty done anywhere unfortunately lowers the reputation of academics in general. And of course, that affects me. We talked at length about what happened to Claudine Gay, previous president of Harvard, in the previous episode. Last month, there appeared an article written by Colin Binkley and Mariah Battlington, titled, Plagiarism Charges Downed Harvard's President, subtitle, A Conservative Attack Helped Fan the Outrage. Here's what they say about the incident. 
Conservatives zeroed in on Gay amid backlash over her congressional testimony about anti-Semitism on campus. Her detractors charged that Gay, who has a PhD in government, was a professor at Harvard and Stanford and headed Harvard's large division before being promoted, got the top job in large part because she is a black woman. Perhaps you're wondering why they conclude that. They quote Christopher Rufo, who, upon Gay being forced out, proclaimed on Twitter, or now X, that she had been scalped. Here's how he describes his mission. We must not stop until we have abolished DEI ideology from every institution in America. That's a really radical ideal. I'm, I'm not really sure how Rufo thinks he's going to do that. He's also announced that he's establishing a plagiarism hunting fund. And its purpose is to, uh, again I'm quoting, expose the rot in the Ivy League and restore truth rather than racialist ideology as the highest principle in academic life. Well, I'm heartily in favor of truth, but I wonder if that's really Rufo's aim. It's hard to see the campaign against plagiarism as merely a concern about truth. Instead, it seems to be exactly what Rufo describes as being, plagiarism hunting that's designed to expose the rot. Of course, in order to undertake such a mission, you need to be convinced that there is actually rot to be exposed. As much as academics dislike plagiarism, the worry that many of us have, yes, me included, is that those attacking gay are not really concerned with truth or honesty or anything like that. That's merely their cover story. Instead, the goal is to discredit Gay because of her work on campus concerning racial justice. We need to see this attack on Gay as being part of a much broader campaign against higher education, an attack that I've been trying to describe in the three episodes so far on higher education. What exactly is worrying those attacking Gay? Part of it is that universities, as we've seen, have worked to make campuses more diverse in terms of race, disability, and sexual orientation. The fact that minorities at universities are usually treated well must rankle those who believe that minorities shouldn't be there in the first place. Moreover, some people outside the academic world are not comfortable with discussions on race and gender that are taking place at most universities. Exactly what they would prefer is not wholly clear, but most likely it's what Ron DeSantis is trying to do for public schools and universities in Florida. Do away with any discussions of such issues, make it illegal to mention words like gay and queer, and turn what would seem to be secular institutions, I'm thinking particularly of New College, into quasi-religious ones. I have talked about how effective the evangelical world has been in suppressing discussions about such matters as race and sexual orientation. What I mean by that is simply that evangelicals have generally been reluctant even to discuss these topics. Conversations on these topics just don't come up. If you think about it, this is a truly subtle form of racism and homophobia. I've mentioned that evangelicals did not support the push for civil rights that began in the 1960s. One way in which they responded to the new law demanding racial integration in schools 
was simply to start their own private schools that would be largely white. Just to be clear, it wasn't just evangelicals doing this, so I'm not trying to single them out. For me personally, the lack of any real discussion about sexuality took an enormous toll on my life. If someone is non-heteronormative sexually, then it's only going to be incredibly difficult for such a person to figure out who or what she or he or they are. I fully understand that a segment of society just wishes that people like me didn't exist. Unfortunately, that message has often been heard loudly and clearly, and some people make it into reality. If you think about the symbolism, the symbolism of indicting gay, the fact that pressure from donors and others resulted in the resignation of the president of the oldest and most famous university in the United States is chilling. From my perspective, I don't think Harvard is nearly as wonderful as the folks who work there probably think, so I'm not particularly concerned about Harvard. But I am worried about how this will shake out for the rest of academia. I mentioned the American Association of University Professors. The president of that organization, Irene Mulvey, has this to say about what happened to Gay. For presidents to be taken down like this, it does not bode well for academic freedom. I think it'll chill the climate for academic freedom. And it may make university presidents less likely to speak out against this inappropriate interference for fear of losing their jobs or being targeted. Let me put that in context. It's one thing to have a particular professor be exposed as academically dishonest. The university or college can simply say that this person was a bad apple, so to speak, and not representative of the school as a whole. But when the person taken down is the president, it becomes a little bit more like a referendum on the university as a whole. In the minds of people like Rufo, who is intent on exposing the rot, to take down the president of the most emblematic university in the U.S. is to show that the entire edifice is rotten. As I say, that's what he thinks he's doing. Let me add a caveat here. University administrators are not usually chosen on the basis of their scholarly output, nor on the basis of their standing in their academic field. If you think about it, a professor who is publishing regularly will only be hampered by the demands of administration. I put in my three years as chair of the department, and I was more than happy when those years came to an end. You should know that some people end up as university administrators because, well, they're not so good at teaching, and they're also not so good at publishing. So what do we do? Administration can become a route to funnel a professor off into something else. I'm not saying that this is the case for Claudine Gay. I simply don't know enough about the situation to make any claim like that. In any case, one should not read too much into the removal of Gay. What would be far more worrying would be if one of Harvard's star academics were found to be guilty of plagiarism. That would really sting. But once again, we've come to the end of another episode. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. Please join me as we continue our discussion of higher education.